All right. Well, I am excited this morning to start this uh, fifth in our series on Esther. It's the fifth and the last uh, message in this series. And um, in part one, we saw that God is in control. Uh, even when things look like they're spinning out of control, God is working behind the scenes. He leaves his fingerprints all over human history, and he leaves his fingerprints all over our lives as well. And then in part two, in chapter two, we saw that God is way ahead of the game. Nothing surprises him. Things may surprise us, but nothing surprises him. And so we saw uh, that God uh, left three pristine God-sized fingerprints all over chapter two. Uh, First, in the unusual method of selecting a new queen. And then second, in the very unusual, unusual selection of Esther to be queen. And then finally, in the remarkably coincidental uncovering of a plot by Mordecai to save the king. And the equally astonishing lack of a reward for Mordecai for his loyalty. Now, then in part three, chapters three and four, we saw that God is with us on the journey. Even when we can't see his hand or understand what's happening, God is with us. He hasn't forsaken us. And then last week, in chapters five to seven, we saw that God will work his plan. You know, and often that requires some patience and it requires faith and trust and humble submission to the sovereignty of God. And so last week when we left off, you know, Esther's uh, had crossed the threshold of decision to enter the king's court uninvited. And then we saw Esther's first banquet during which she had um, the right setting, but not the right timing to bring her request to the king. And then we saw that even though she couldn't see it, her hesitation was also providentially inspired by God because he had some things that needed to be accomplished in the next 24 hours. And then we saw uh, Haman's rage and how uh, it uh, made him a prisoner to Mordecai in his mind and how it led him to an unwise decision to erect a gallows uh, to execute Mordecai on. And then we saw that though Haman was working his plan, God was also working his plan behind the scenes. And so that night, King Xerxes couldn't sleep, and the record of Mordecai's loyalty was read to him, leading to this absolutely fantastic scene where Haman leads Mordecai through the streets, proclaiming his praises. And then finally, we saw Esther's second banquet and the very dramatic confrontation as Esther revealed the plot against her people and pointed directly at Haman, saying, this vile Haman is responsible. And with that, Haman's story came to an end as he was impaled on the very pole that was set up for Mordecai. So let's pick up the story there. We're in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And it says this, That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Now, that is quite a windfall. I mean, remember that Haman earlier had offered the equivalent of over $200 million dollars on this plan without even batting an eye. So in today's term, Haman was likely worth, well, he was likely a multi-billionaire. And, and all of a sudden, uh, Esther inherits all of that. You know, there's a saying in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22, that says, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. And, you know, that's not to say that this is a spiritual law that in every case, the wealth of the unrighteous ends up going to the righteous. But as a proverb, it simply means that often that's the case. And here, this is an example of that. So 
um, whether you never receive any type of inheritance in this life, or even if you've been materially blessed beyond belief, I want you to think for a minute about the inheritance that the follower of Jesus has. Listen to these words uh, from the Apostle Peter in his first letter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with uh, an inexpressible and glorious joy. Esther lived that in the natural, what we are seeing here in the spiritual. All right, so going on in the second half of verse 1, it says, And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. Now, stop there for a second. Uh, imagine this from the king's point of view. Try to put yourself in his shoes for a minute. He's now finding out that his beloved queen is related to the loyal guy who saved his life. I mean, what a joyous revelation that must have been for him. I mean, talk about connecting the before everything seemed to be happening kind of behind the scenes and he, he couldn't really connect all the dots. But now all the dots are connected for him. And, and you can see that all of this pleases the king because in verse 2 he says, The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So the signet ring is the, the king's authority. Uh, he just met Mordecai, and he gives it to him. So on the one hand, this is astonishing. I mean, here's the guy he just met, and he gives all his authority to him. But on the other hand, in, in another way, it's not really that astonishing. Because as you look at the writings of King Solomon and the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the things that you glean is this idea that one of the challenges of rulers is getting good advisors. They value wise advisors and advisors who have ulterior motives and who are seeking their own uh, gain and profit uh, cause problems for kings. And so in Mordecai, uh, the king sees a loyal, humble, and faithful servant who is not motivated by selfish gain, a person who is also on good terms with his beloved queen. And so just like that, Mordecai is the second most powerful man in the empire. And so everything is revealed to the king at the right time. Now, think back for a second. Remember how Mordecai had told Esther not to reveal anything about her family? Well, you know, a lot of people would have used that. They wouldn't have done that. A lot of people would have used that situation to try to leverage their close relationship with the new queen to their own advantage. But Mordecai showed both wisdom and humility. So, you know, in Peter... In the same letter that we just read from a minute ago, 
He also went on to say, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time. And so what that tells us is that when you lift yourself up by your own hand, your position is only as secure as your own hand. But when God lifts you up in his time, your position is as secure as the hand of God. All right, going on in verse 3 now. It says, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Now, all right, Haman is dead, but there's still a problem. The Jewish people are still scheduled for annihilation. And that's a a really big matzo ball that's still hanging out there, right? And so here's Esther weeping and pleading and falling at the king's feet. And, you know, a lot of us guys, we can deal with a lot of problems and a lot of challenges. I mean, when we have a problem, we can solve the problem usually. And when we have a challenge, we can overcome the challenge. But one thing that we often don't do well is deal with a woman who is crying before us. If you're like me, you're kind of like, you know, um, where's the off button? How do I fix this? I don't know. I, I don't know how to make this stop, right? Well, so that's the situation King Xerxes is in. And so he goes on in verses 5 and 6. Um, uh, Esther goes on asking, uh, let the order be written overruling uh, the dispatches that Haman devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And the king, of course, is moved. He replies to Esther in verse seven, to Esther and Mordecai in verse 7, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. So he rehearses what has already been done, the guy who's driving the issue is now out of the way. and um, But there's a problem in trying to overrule the order, as Esther asked. Remember that pesky little law of the Medes and the Persians that we talked about a few weeks ago that said that no law that had been established by uh, the king's signet ring could ever be repealed? Well, that's a problem. They can't repeal that edict. But going on in verse 8, he tells them, Now write a decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So if you've got a problem that seems unsolvable, the best thing to do is enlist the aid and assistance of the people who have the most motivation to see the problem solved. And so the king here enlists Mordecai to write a competing decree in behalf of the Jews. And so in the next several verses, we see Mordecai gathering all the royal secretaries and writing out a decree in all the languages of 127 provinces of the Persian Empire, all the way from Egypt to India. And in verse 11, it says, The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. Now notice, this is a very reasonable decree. They give them the right of self-defense and no more. They may defend themselves against anyone who attacks them, but it does not give them the right to attack, harm, or plunder anyone who does not attack them. And this is entirely reasonable and measured. Mordecai doesn't use his position of authority inappropriately. And in this, we can see another contrast between Mordecai and Haman. Haman abused his power to harm 
and to the detriment of the innocent. But Mordecai defended the weak without harming the innocent. All right, so pick it up in verse 15. It says, When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. All right, now pause there for a second. The city of Susa held a joyous celebration. Not just for the Jewish people, but it was the entire city. Apparently, Haman's plan wasn't really that popular. And apparently, Haman himself wasn't that popular. The whole city is celebrating that, that Haman is gone and the Jews can defend themselves. Going on in verse 16 and 17, it says, For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. Well, of course there was, right? Uh, but I want you to think for a minute about how much perspective and timing matters. Think of this. Haman's decree was published and issued on the 13th day of the first month. Mordecai's competing decree goes out on the 23rd day of the third month. So a little more than two months went by between them. Now, imagine with me for a minute, what if both of them had gone out at the same time? What if just for fun, the king had issued a decree that said on a certain day in the 12th month, everyone could attack the Jews and plunder them, and also the Jews could defend themselves and plunder those who attacked them. Would the Jewish people rejoice over that um, on this 23rd day of the third month? Well, probably not. I mean, that would have not been seen uh, like a good thing. That would have been seen as a serious disruption. Because now they have to prepare for war. Now they have to get swords and shields and learn how to use them. You know, and they'd have to adjust for the next eight months. And they'd have to live differently and make contingency plans. It would have been seen as a very, very bad situation. But instead, since Haman's decree went out first and brought abject despair for two months before Mordecai's decree went out, now they're rejoicing in the streets. Even though the situation for the next nine months would still be the same, they're rejoicing in the streets. Now they get to prepare for war. Now they get to acquire swords and shields and learn how to use them. Now they get to plan and adjust. You know, when you're going through a trial or a difficulty, perspective is critical. And if you find yourself in despair, you need to get into God's Word and into prayer, and ask God for His perspective. And here's a little bit of God's perspective for you that I want to drop on you right now. It comes from Romans chapter 8, and I know I shared this recently, but I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to hear it again. He says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Pause there for a second. You know, we often quote that verse, but, you know, sometimes we miss the context of it, that Jesus is interceding for us. According to this context, Jesus is interceding for us in the midst of present sufferings, in the midst of trials, in the midst of accusations, when evil people say things against us. That's when Jesus is interceding for us. Going on, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Say, that's some awesome heavenly perspective. You know, and I think that's what the Jewish people across the empire were gaining uh, as this order from Mordecai went out. They're gaining heavenly perspective. And, and look what happened next in our story in verse 17. At the end of verse 17, it says, And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Now, that's amazing. All of a sudden, everyone is afraid of the Jewish people, and many want to join them. And it wasn't simple to become Jewish. It was more than just professing your faith. It was a process. For men, there was circumcision. And uh, for everybody, there was training in the law, a willingness to abide by restrictive Jewish customs and laws. And uh, But now pagan people are turning to Judaism. You know, I believe that's an illustration of what God wants to do during our time. God wants his people to be examples of such light and joy and grace and hope during this time that people who are struggling and people who are fearful and people who, who, who don't yet have faith in Jesus will see that and be attracted to that faith in Jesus and, uh, and, and begin to come to him and, and turn their hearts to him. May God do that among us and among his people and may many more people experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of what we're going through right now. All right, going on in chapter 9. And here now we've fast-forwarded about nine months. It's the 13th day of the 12th month and uh, the day when everything is supposed to go down. And in verse 1 it says this, On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. All right, now, there were, there were a lot of people out there who aren't followers of Jesus who, you know, we would not classify as enemies of God's people, right? They're not antagonistic, they're not hostile, they're just indifferent or lukewarm or they just don't care. But there are some people who make themselves the enemy of God's people. I mean, they, they are hostile. They are antagonistic. And for whatever reason, whether because of some anger or hatred, or um, there are some with definite evil intent who desire to harm God's people, or in the words of our story, hope to overpower them. You know, it was, it's true today, and it was true back then. But I love the past tense here. It says they had hoped to overpower them. But going on, it says, but now... The tables were turned. 
And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Don't you love it when God turns the table? I mean, the Bible is filled with stories of God turning the tables. Think of the Israelites in the wilderness for a minute, uh, by the Red Sea, just before they crossed. The, here they were, hemmed up against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh had chased them down with his armies, and so now they've cut them off, and there's Pharaoh with his armies, and their swords, and their shields, and their chariots, and the Israelites have nothing, and they're up against the sea, and it looks like they're doomed, but God turned the tables. He, uh, he, he parted the Red Sea, the Israelites went through on dry ground, and then as the Egyptians tried to follow, the seas overwhelmed them, and God turned the tables. Think about David and Goliath for a minute. There's this uh, undersized teenager facing off with this nine-foot battle-hardened warrior. And in the natural, there is no way that he could possibly prevail. But God turned the tables, and in the end, David prevailed and brought glory to God. And then think also about Gideon and his 300 men against all the hordes of the Midianites. In the natural, they couldn't possibly have a victory, but God, again, turned the tables and brought the victory. Think about Jesus. He was dead in the tomb for three days. But on the third day, it says that the ground began to shake. A powerful angel of the Lord came down, rolled the stone away, and Jesus came back to life and walked out of that grave. God turned the tables. I love it when God turns the tables. And in our story, this is how it looked, beginning in verse 2. It says, The Jews assembled in their cities, in all the provinces of King Xerxes, to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them, because the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews, because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace, and his reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. Okay, so here's the situation. Mordecai is becoming really powerful. All the nobles and princes and governors of the 127 provinces, well, they're naturally afraid to, to harm the Jews now because they're afraid of how Mordecai might be able to harm them, and, and, and that's understandable. And so they're actively helping the Jewish people in their defense. And most of the common people, well, they're afraid as well. But yet, in spite of all of this, there were still some enemies who were determined to destroy them. And, and here are the results of that, beginning in verse 5. The Jews struck down all of their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased with those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now hold on to that phrase for a minute. And so this was a rout. And in verse 12, the king asked Esther if she has uh, any other requests regarding the situation. And so verse 13, Esther replies, If it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow and let Haman's son, ten sons, be impaled on poles. So probably there were some enemies of the Jews who just were not giving up. And so the need arose the Jews to defend themselves in Susa for another day. And so the king agrees. Uh, the edicts issued. Haman's ten sons are impaled uh, on poles as a warning to others. And then in verse 15 it says, The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day, the day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So there's that phrase again. Verse 16. 
Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hand on the plunder. Okay, so now, three times, it says that they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So now, in your everyday life, you know that when someone repeats themselves, that that thing is important to them, to them, right? So, like, when your wife sends you to the grocery store with a list, but there's one thing on the list she keeps on repeating, you know that you better not come back without that thing, right? And uh, Or if your boss keeps repeating a 3 p.m. Uh, deadline, you know you better have the job done by 3 p.m. Or if your teacher keeps repeating a certain date in the same sentence as the word test, well, you know you better have studied by that date, right? Well, when God repeats himself, we need to pause and ask God, what is it that you want me to see? Three times here, it says that the Jewish people did not lay their hands on the plunder. And the question is, why not? I mean, the, the edict made it lawful for them to take the plunder, and uh, no one would have blamed them or opposed them if they had exercised this right. So, I mean, and besides that, who else would it go to? There would be nobody left to claim that plunder. I mean, maybe in some cases, there might be some relative left who, who might lay claim uh, on that inheritance, but in most cases, there'd be no one left to claim the plunder. So why didn't they take it? And then also, look at the breadth of this. Not only in Susa, but across 127 provinces from India to Egypt, the Jewish people did not lay hands on the plunder. I mean, this is a remarkable and unprecedented exercise in restraint. So what's going on here? To me, this looks like a very widespread grassroots effort to make a collective statement about their motives and intentions. I mean, it's not coming from Mordecai or Esther or the palace. The word from the palace was, you know, have at it. Take all the plunder you want. But nonetheless, this unprecedented, widespread movement takes place in an era when there's no social influencers, there's no social media, there's no media of any type to speak of. Um, but yet this movement takes place to ignore the plunder. And in doing so, they make a very loud statement about their motives. It was self-defense and nothing more. There's no greed. There's no desire for money. There's no desire for personal gain. And so this um, loud statement comes about their motives and also a very loud contrast between themselves and Haman, who was motivated by money and greed. And also this loud contrast between themselves and the armies that attacked them. You know, those armies could have stayed at home and alive, as many other people did. You know, everyone who stayed at home and isolated themselves and practiced social distancing on that day stayed alive. You only died if you attacked the Jews. Only those who were determined to destroy them perished. And so here again, we see tremendous restraint. What a testimony that is. Everyone in the kingdom would know that their motives were simply to defend themselves and their families. And so ended the evil plan of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Now, before we get to the conclusion, um, I just have a few thoughts about the end of this chapter, verses 20 to 32. I'm not going to read all the verses. I encourage you to do that later. But in these verses, we see Mordecai and Esther establish a yearly holiday uh, celebration to commemorate this great deliverance that they had just experienced. And this is in addition 
to all the holidays that the law of Moses had already established for them. And of course, you know, why not celebrate and remember this for generations? Because these are amazing events. But what I want you to focus on in these verses is verse 26. It says, Therefore, these days were called Purim, for the word poor. Now, you may remember that the word poor means the lot. And the casting of lots to make decisions and uh, set dates was a long-established practice in the ancient Near East. And so Haman had cast lots, or the poor, uh, to let fate or chance decide when the Israelites should be annihilated. So the question is, you know, why take this word uh, to name the holiday? Why not something like Freedom Day or Deliverance Day? Well, the choosing of this word for this holiday was a bold and defiant repudiation of the idea of chance. A defiant denial of the idea that your future is locked in and determined by a, by a cold, unfeeling set of unchangeable circumstances and events, and that there's nothing that can be done about it. So in choosing this word Purim, they're mocking the idea of chance and fate and saying rather loudly in their celebrations that God is working behind the scenes. God is working behind the scenes and he leaves his fingerprints all over the human history and all over our lives. God is in control. He's way ahead of the game. He's with you on the journey. He's going to work his plan. And the big idea I want to leave with you this week is that God is going to get you through to the other side. You know, one day, followers of Jesus are going to be on the other side of every trial, every challenge, every difficulty, every sickness, and even death. The Apostle, Paul, uh, the Apostle John said it this way in the book of Revelation. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That is the destiny of those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that isn't in the hands of chance or fate. That is in the hands of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you really don't have a relationship with him, uh, here's what he says to you. Peter said this. He said, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And John tells us, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, I can't be good enough to earn God's favor, to, be, to, to earn God's forgiveness. Uh, the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we're all honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit, you know what? The truth is, I don't measure up to God's holiness. But Jesus died on the cross for us. And then he rose again from the dead. And when he died on the cross, he was paying the penalty for our sins. So if you're going to be okay with God, you have to come to him 
in repentance, saying, you know, God, I can't save myself, uh, but I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross and that he rose again from the grave. And you have to uh, open your heart to let God and control your heart. And so what I'd like to do is lead you now in the prayer uh, to do that. Would you be willing to pray with me if you want to, to give your heart to Jesus and let him have control and put your faith and trust in him for your salvation? Would you say this prayer uh, along with me after me? Dear Heavenly Father, I'm coming to you today. I confess I can't save myself. I'm a sinner and I don't measure up to your holiness. But I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross and paid the penalty for my sin. And I believe that he rose again from the grave. And so I open my heart to you and give you control of my heart by faith. I don't want to be ruled by sin and self-will anymore. I want to be ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ, his word, and the Holy Spirit. So come into my heart as I place my faith and my trust into you and make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've just prayed that for the first time and you're just becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, can I tell you, welcome to the family of God. So glad for you. We want to help you grow in Christ and uh, um, encourage you to get in the Bible and read it every day. Just start in the New Testament, maybe the Gospel of Mark, and uh, God will be talking to you. And then pray a little bit every day, even if it's just for five minutes. And then let us know that you've come to Christ as well. Send me an email on, on um, uh, paul.bovier. You can get it on our website at lancasterfirst.com. Send me an email. Um, and would love to help you in your faith with Christ. And now, for all of us who've been watching, uh, as we come to the end of this message and the end of this series, remember, God is always working behind the scenes. He's always in control. He's always way ahead of the game. He's with you on the journey. He's always working His plan. And He will get you through to the other side. So, well... Here's how we're going to wrap up our service this morning. I'm going to ask Jill if she can come over and, uh, and join me here. And um, uh, she's monitoring. Uh, she's been monitoring our prayer requests that you've been uh, putting up in the chats and uh, have been submitting. And so uh, I'm going to pray a general prayer of closing this service. And then um, Jill and I are going to stay here. We're going to pray over all of these needs uh, before we end our live stream. So if you'd like, I'd like to uh, invite you to stay with us during that time as well. And then don't miss us tonight on our small group meeting um, on Zoom at 6 o'clock as well. And then Wednesday we'll be on Zoom again. Amen. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, bless your name. Thank you for this message um, uh, on Esther this morning and this whole series, God. It's been so timed by you to bring so much encouragement to our hearts, God. And uh, I pray that... Um, uh, you would just apply this to every heart who's been listening, and that you would be with your people, God, um, in a special way, and that you'd encourage them. Uh, for in the name of Jesus, I pray, and I'm hoping everybody at home is saying, Amen, Amen.